Welcome to Crime Brulee, the true crime podcast that serves up some of the most intriguing cases out there. If you're a true crime addict, it's a lot like gourmet food for thought. I'm your host, Kirsten Dorman, and I hope you're ready for today's episode because we're diving straight into the second course of the Robert Fisher case, but not before I introduce Crime Brulee's very first guest. Would you please introduce yourself and let us know about your thoughts on the case so far? I'm Terrence. Uh, this case is kind of crazy. He's, <laughs> he's, he's literally a kind of a crazy kind of guy. He smeared elk blood on his face, so I think that's kind of weird. Yeah. And I mean, do you think there's a possibility that he's still out there? Because that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Honestly, probably not. I don't think Probably he is. not? I don't think he is. I can't wait to see if that changes the more we talk about things. And I'd like to add one more thing before we dig in. Um, I'm going to make a correction from last episode because I mentioned Carol Jackson, the more public of Robert's two sisters, and I named her as being the older of the two sisters. When re-watching some of the documentary with her interviewed in it, I realized that this was incorrect because she kind of gave the birth order of Robert, her, and their other sister. Um, because when she was talking about their parents' divorce, she was saying that she was in sixth grade, Robert was in high school, and their other sister was in college. So this would make Jackson the uh, youngest and Robert the middle child. And because information about Robert's early life is pretty difficult to come by, um, this probably just went over my head when I was initially researching, so just want to apologize for the mistake. Speaking of last episode, though, we left off with investigators as they sifted through the ashes to find what little remained of the Fisher home after it exploded with enough force for every house within half a mile radius to feel it. Can you imagine that? No, really. That's kind of insane. Right? <laughs> so the remains of Mary, Brittany, and Bobby were all recovered, but among some other things that we'll get to talking about, Robert, the family patriarch, was missing, which... I don't know about you, but that just gives me kind of a... Like, so he was, like, there in the house when it exploded, but... Well, we don't know if he was there in the house when it exploded so far at this point. We don't know if he was in the house, if he's at work, or where he is. All we know is that there's a gun missing from the house, there's a car missing from the driveway, and all his clothes are actually missing from the house. Like, you kind of knew it was going to happen? I mean, that's the, the debate, kind of, because I personally, I go back and forth as to whether or not this could have been premeditated or whether it was just one day he snapped. Hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of evidence to point both ways, and we'll kind of get into talking about that as we go along. But So one incredibly common thing to do in an investigation is to establish a timeline. This isn't exactly the same as what we've done so far because what we've done in the past episode and a little bit just now is look into the backgrounds of the people that we consider key players in the situation. And so doing this is really important because it helps us understand where these people are coming from and gives us a place to start when we're inferring why they did what they did leading up to and after a crime takes place. So establishing a timeline is really helpful because it helps us more or less figure out who was where at what time, who was with who, and who was in a place where they would have the opportunity to do certain things, like falling victim to a crime, or witnessing someone commit the crime, or even committing the crime themselves. 
overall, what we're looking for when we're looking to determine how likely it is for someone to have committed a crime comes down to three main things, in my opinion. So we've got motive, opportunity, and general ability to commit a crime. For instance, establishing a timeline and background of who the victim would have been in contact with helps us a lot with establishing opportunity and motive. By this point, most people are aware of the fact that it's statistically more likely to be a victim of a violent crime and then know your attacker, especially if there's someone you're close with. And I mean, it's kind of a scary thought, but that's just the reality of things. I mean, if you just think about it, if the perpetrator is close to the victim, they're more likely to build up negative feelings about them much more easily, and this can translate into a motive. This person could be communicating with the victim daily, seeing them at work or school every day, or even living with them, which, as I'm sure you can tell, provides the perp with plenty of opportunity as well. So what does the timeline look like in the Robert Fisher case? Let's take a look at the day before everything went up in flames on April 9th, 2001. From what I've been able to find and what I've seen, there's nothing to say that this was anything but a normal morning and afternoon for the Fisher family. During the day, Robert went about his normal routine and he even changed the oil in his truck and replaced some of the insulation in the attic. When we get to the evening though, there's some things to note that went on. So Mary brought Bobby to what's referred to in the sources that I've looked at as hunting classes. And I'm not personally familiar with what it means to go to a hunting class, but I can say that it seemed to be a fairly normal thing for Bobby to do. And everyone who brought up these classes did so pretty casually. And it makes sense also because Robert, who obviously is his dad, was such a big outdoorsman. Have you ever heard of hunting classes or anything like that? Um, I did it my fair share of hunting back in Alabama, but I've never taken a class for it. We usually, no. I learned on my, like, not on my own, but definitely. Like, kind of learning by doing? Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm, if I'm thinking about a hunting class, I'm probably thinking about learning how to hold a gun, learning mm -hmm. how to look down sight, you know, just the yeah. basics. And, I mean, it's normal, I think, to have Bobby be interested in hunting because his dad was so into it, right? Right, yeah. Just, like, learning how to lure out, lure out animals. Yeah. How to set up a trap. So Mary takes Bobby to this class and then do you remember how in the last episode I mentioned Brittany was in the Junior National Honor Society? Yes. So tonight was actually her induction ceremony. Robert brought her to it and personally I can only imagine how proud Brittany must have felt um, to have not only earned her way there but to get to look at her dad who I imagine was smiling at her and you know, she was just really happy to see him be proud of her. Which, I mean, looking back on everything that happened, I feel like that just kind of adds an extra layer of, of sadness to what happened, just because we know what he ended up doing to her. So later that night, we're assuming while Bobby and Brittany were already asleep, a neighbor reported hearing Mary and Robert arguing around 10 or 10.30. That wasn't uncommon for the couple because they fought often and really, really loudly, with Mary apparently doing the majority of the yelling, actually, which 
I personally found pretty surprising just because of the fact that she was always such a yes sir when he said jump she said how high kind of wife but then when they would fight she would be the one screaming at him and he just kind of sat back and took it like reportedly he was pretty passive and letting all of it build up he was kind of in hindsight probably letting a lot build up and kind of pressure cooker his being like a pressure cooker with his emotions but so he would apparently actually go off and go camping for either the weekend or just overnight to kind of blow blow off steam we assume he would take the family dog a lot and just that kind of thing So when investigators were looking for Robert on the morning of April 10th, that was where they at first assumed he might be, actually, after they found out that he wasn't at work, because they, when they were able to look through the remains of the house, they counted the bodies and they said, okay, one, two, three, we know four people live here. They called his job, and if you remember, he was working at the Mayo Clinic. So they call the Mayo Clinic, they say, oh, Robert's not here. So they assume, okay, he's probably camping or in the woods somewhere because him and Mary had a fight the night before. So they didn't immediately jump into launching searches in the woods because doing so would take a lot of resources, which means money. And they felt that it was really possible that he didn't even know about what happened. After all, the scene hadn't been analyzed yet and they initially didn't even know which adult was in the house and which one was missing. Because when we talk about them assuming that it could have been Robert, this is after they identified Mary's body. And at first they weren't sure if it was, the adult body was her or Robert, because it was actually Mary's Toyota 4Runner that was missing from the driveway. Mm. Which, it strikes a lot of people as strange that he took her car. Because if you remember, he changed the oil in his car Right? Yeah, that's kind of weird. I thought, honestly, when you were talking about it earlier, uh, I thought it was kind of weird that he also went and did work up in the attic before he left. Yeah, he redid all the insulation up there, which a lot of people who think that this was just him snapping, they point to that and they say, look, you know, why would you replace the insulation in your attic if you're planning on blowing up your house the next day? So, either way, when investigators figured out that it was Robert that wasn't home, they still couldn't rule out the possibility that he had nothing to do with what happened because for all they knew, Robert could hear or see on the news what happened to his house and to his family and rush back from his camping trip just totally shocked, horrified, and innocent. So this meant initially that he was only labeled as a person of interest. And in case anybody listening doesn't know, the difference between a person of interest and a suspect is actually that the person of interest is someone who investigators think has information that is especially valuable to them, and a lot of times we do see them turn into suspects, but they're not always seen that way or treated that way when law enforcement is talking to or looking at them because they're not necessarily a suspect. You know what I mean? Yeah. As time went on, though, it became clearer and clearer that whoever had done this not only knew the victims and had significant emotional motive to harm them, but that they had likely been in the house at a rather intimate time that night. I mean, 
to inflict wounds on these people like they ended up being discovered to have, you have to really, really hate them, right? <laughs> so let's jump back to the ninth for a second because as it turns out, Robert also had left the house at a really strange time. So after his and Mary's fight, Robert actually withdrew money from an ATM on 74th Street and McDowell Road in Scottsdale, which is about a mile from the house, basically right down the road. He did this about 10.42, and the reason that time is so specific is because he was actually caught on CCTV, and this also shows us that he was not, or that he was alone in the Forerunner at the time. You can even look this up and find a still image of him at the ATM doing this, and I'm actually gonna pull it up right now so you can take a look. So you have the image right in front of you. Do you want to describe to us what you're seeing? Uh, just looks like a, a normal guy. He's just going to the ATM, pulling off money and going back to his truck. Or technically it's a, here, I'm going to zoom in so you can see. This is actually the Forerunner SUV. No, oh, oh, so, okay. And you can tell there's no one inside, right? It's right, just, it's just him. So is he, is he planning to leave? I mean, we think he might be, we're not super sure, just because the timeline around this isn't super clear as to whether or not he had already murdered his family or whether he was maybe just thinking about it and what he could have been doing with the money. He seemed pretty casual about it. it right. But it's kind of scary. Yeah, it's kind of chilling to look at knowing what he would go on to do. Right. Being being that I used to live in Scottsdale, that's kind of kind of chilly. Like the seventy fourth and McDonald's is not that far from where I used to live at in Scottsdale. Really? Yeah. No way. I mean, even just knowing that this happened twenty five minutes away from where we're sitting right now kind of gives me the heebie jeebies, but just to think that you could live in the same town as somebody or be born in the same area is something that went on that was like this I, I can't imagine how that feels so Robert actually withdrew $250 which some sources say was the daily limit and one of the biggest points of confusion in this case is actually why Robert took out any money at all and why he took out this little when he actually had a lot of other money and other assets that he could have made use of he never even attempted to come back and withdraw any more money or liquidate any of his other assets later on. So just kind of keep this in the back of your mind as we touch on some of the theories later. But I want to know what your thoughts are about the fact that he took out $250 and what that could mean. Like if he's running away to go start a new life, like some people think he did. I mean, that's not a lot of money. Well, I mean, at the time, he could have just been using $200, you know, go from hotel to hotel. He could have been mm -hmm. using that 250 go get a um, one-day, like one-night, just like a quick stay at a hotel while mm -hmm. everything is transitioning. Or even a Greyhound ticket, right? Yeah. And then just go to the next and then pull more money off elsewhere. And some people, we'll, we'll touch on this later and I'll outline these theories again, but some people also think he could have taken his own life. So if he did, why the 250? That is true. That you is know, it's strange. So 
This activity at the ATM, some say, makes it possible for him to have already murdered Mary, Brittany, and Bobby and potentially be preparing to take off. Personally, I don't think that this is very likely because of the nature of their deaths. He would have at least needed to wash up and change before going out if the case was that he murdered them before going to the bank. And, I mean, didn't he look pretty clean Yeah, he seemed pretty in the calm. CCTV? And he seemed really calm, too. Not like you would probably be feeling right. if you just murdered you just your murder whole family. Somebody, you would definitely be way more jumpy and, you know, like, active-wise. Like, your head movements would just be all over the place. You would be looking around to see if anybody was, you know, watching you or anything. And yeah. he didn't seem to care that he was walking up to ATM, nor did the camera right there above his face didn't care. Yeah. Like, even the look on his face. Just so plain. Exactly. Not at all like he is rushing to go anywhere or anything like that, which he totally would have needed to be if he had already murdered his family before this because he would have had to done so in a basically record amount of time if he and Mary had fought around 1030 and then he's getting to the bank, which, I mean, it's not that far away, but it's still far away enough to where it would take him some time to need to get in the car and he might run into some traffic and things like that. I mean, it's 10.42 at night, but there's still kind of people out and about. Right. You know? Scottsdale. In Scottsdale, yeah. So I personally don't think he would have been able to accomplish this, especially without any visible blood on him, even if the bank was so nearby, right? It's also unlikely that he had already opened up the pipe and began setting the fire because that just doesn't line up with what the nature of the fire apparently would have been. In the same documentary I mentioned watching last time, one of the lead investigators says that because of the accelerant and because of the gas, the the fire, the flyer, (laughs) would likely not have been a slow burning one. So from what I can understand, this means that he would have to have left sometime on the morning of the 10th. It's possible that people didn't really notice him leaving because this would also potentially be kind of the same time he would be leaving for work because he still did have like a nine to five kind of job where he would go to the hospital. He was, um, I think a respiratory technician if I'm remembering correctly. So it's, it's really, really possible that he did sneak out in the morning time around when he would be leaving for work knowing what he was leaving behind and i think just that image it's very horror movie worthy to think about and again this same investigator did note that one detail we can glean from knowing this about the fire is that mary Brittany, and bobby were likely already gone before it even started They had all been found laying in their beds and showed no signs of possibly trying to escape or crawl away like they would have been if they had been alive to realize that the house was burning. The smoke could have killed them in their sleep if it was slow burning, sure, but they still would likely have smelled it and tried to crawl away even if they were injured. In your sleep, when you're sleeping and you're feel like you're going out of breath, I feel like you would definitely like wake up and be like, oh my God, you know? Yeah, exactly. Wake up and do something to try to survive. Our instinct is to survive, so I don't think that they would just stay in bed. Exactly. And kind of along these same lines, this makes me seriously doubt that Robert had killed them before going to the bank because 
even though the kids could already have been sleeping when the fight happened, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me for Mary to go to bed so quickly after getting so fired up and yelling at her husband loudly enough for the neighbors to hear and make note of it. So, officially, we just don't know, to be fair, the times that we have for the fight taking place. Because, I mean, who sets a timer on, oh, I heard the neighbors start fighting. Boop. Okay, they ended around 10.30? Okay. Click. There's my timer. <laughs> um, but, right? Like, you wouldn't really have an exact time on that. Right. Yeah, that's, that's not possible. So to be fair, we don't really know when everything took place, but I think this is just kind of the most likely scenario, personally. What do you think about that? I don't, I, honestly, I don't have any uh, thoughts on that. I think if, if someone actually could put a time period together of what time they started arguing and when they ended, those are some really nosy neighbors. Yeah, right? <laughs> it would have definitely had to have been like at the front door listening, like, They've got their little binoculars yeah. out. <laughs> They're like, oh, the fishers are fighting again. Do you want to come watch? Yeah, I'll get the popcorn. Don't worry. <laughs> so, to be fair, we don't have times for everything exactly taking place. But the fact that the forerunner in the background of the CCT footage that we keep talking about, it appeared to be empty. And we know that Robert actually did take the family dog with him. We can kind of tell that this could mean that he was taking off at that moment, but it's it's more likely that he wasn't. But it, not it quite seemed, yet. It seemed empty, and he took the dog with him right. when he left. Right. So if the dog wasn't with him, then was he leaving? Exactly. That's what we can't really tell because. It, I mean, the quality of the CCTV footage isn't exactly HD, right? But at the same time, like you said, the car looked empty. Right. So it's, it's a little bit up in the air, but the general consensus, I think, is that he wasn't quite taking off yet, and he would have been leaving in the morning. Either way, though, after he's seen on camera at the ATM, Fisher is never captured on CCTV again, as far as we know, like ever. He doesn't show up at the memorial service for Mary, Bobby, and Brittany. And, I mean, they even had plainclothes officers in attendance just in case he showed up. Can you imagine? Yeah, just have officers just uh, just there. And he shows up and out of nowhere, he just gets arrested right there at the memorial. I mean, oh, can, you, can you imagine just being like a friend or a family member of these people mm. and seeing Robert show up? So at their how, memorial. How long? How long after? How long after um, the whole incident? How long after before they had the memorial? I think it was either a few. It was either a few days or about a week afterward. So could you say that if he would have showed up, if he was camping and then he showed up, what if he stayed camping for a week and just to you know blow off some steam and then he showed up and they arrested him? <laughs> Do you think he could plead himself to be innocent? It's possible. I mean, you got to remember, again, we're looking at this with a lot of hindsight, and they're just kind of beginning to find things out. So around this time, they're still teetering on, is he a suspect? Is he just a person of interest? And maybe he's scared because he's seen and heard on the news, oh my god, my neighbors heard my wife and I fighting last night, and then my house blows up. Right. 
they're gonna think it was me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it's possible, but like I said, as time goes on, he becomes more and more of a suspect in everybody's eyes, and I think at this point we can pretty safely say he did it, right? At this point, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about eighteen years later, a little more than that. And nobody else has ever been even connected with this. Nobody else would have the three things that we were talking about, right? Like motive, opportunity, and ability to commit the crime. Because this, like we said when we were going over the timeline, would have to have happened at a pretty intimate time at night. And the only people who would potentially be in the house, as far as we know, would be the people that lived there. So it just, it, it just makes sense. So is there any sign of, like, a break-in or any? No, and I mean, the thing about it is if there was, we would never know because the house was literally ashes, just nothing when they came across it. And so if there was a sign of a break-in, they wouldn't have known. Right. So I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, actually, because there is the off chance that... We're all just totally wrong. And somebody broke in. And somebody broke in and did this. And then Robert was out camping. Maybe he found out. And maybe he did go and take his own life. Or maybe he did go and run away. We really, there's not a lot of answers in this case. We're just going on the best logical thread that we can with the evidence that we have. Right. So it's like, uh, if, if someone like broke in, it's like... He's having to deal with like losing family again, like you know, like you said in the first podcast when he was fifteen, his parents got divorced. So as mm-hmm. after that, then he goes get married, and it's his biggest fear is losing family. So he come imagine coming back from camping, seeing his family's gone, and that could just be putting them over the edge, and he just wouldn't take his own life. That could be. It's definitely it's a possibility, and honestly, can't totally rule it out because he's not here for us to ask him. So on April 20th, a witness actually reports seeing Fisher near the wilderness outside of Young, Arizona, according to Arizona Central. And the same day, police found the forerunner and the family dog in Tonto National Forest, which is nearby to Young, making it even more likely that the witness had actually seen Fisher. Hundreds of law enforcement officers would go on to stake out and search the area for three whole days. Which, I mean, when I first found that out, my jaw was personally on the floor. I couldn't believe it. Like, again, can you imagine? So he was still in Arizona. Yeah, he was still in Arizona. And can you imagine coming across this guy just totally by chance? Right. This person was just minding their own business, camping. And you see this guy who is wanted by this point. I I think by this point the FBI was involved in investigating, so... He's a pretty big deal. And you're just, you know, you're on your weekend camping trip and, oh. Oh, hey, Fisher. How you doing? Yeah, right? (laughs) There he is. Oh, no. (laughs) So in case you're wondering, because I totally was when I first heard that there was a dog involved. His name is Blue. And if the picture that came up when I was trying to find what breed he is is him, he's actually pretty adorable. Um, You have the picture right in front of you. Yeah, he is pretty cute. Right? <laughs> like he'd be a lab mix, but I don't, I don't know what other kind of breed he would be. Yeah, it's hard to tell, but 
it is pretty easy to tell that he's a very good boy. <laughs> so there is a, a clip of home video that I saw when I was researching this primarily that stuck out to me because Blue's in it and he's howling along to the kids playing this harmonica. So cute. So I'm going to try and play that clip for you really quickly. The kids are just kind of dancing around. Not the best musicians, but I think Blue gives them some pretty I good backup. Blue, Blue's pretty good. He's the star of the show here, I think. So, I think it's pretty clear. Blue is a very good, very talented boy. But he's also part of a major source of confusion surrounding the case because he's part of one of many pieces of the scene Fisher left behind at the car. And since we're already talking about him, we're gonna go over where Blue was and why he might have been there in the first place. So some people speculate that Fisher brought the family dog along because he wanted to use him as a lookout for when he parked the car. This doesn't quite work because as it's been said a million times by everybody else who's covered this case pretty much, um, Whenever Blue would bark to let Fisher know someone was there, he'd also be letting the other people that were looking for Fisher know exactly where they were, which, not very helpful. <laughs> but despite all the speculation about Blue's presence, I do have to say that I think this element of things, at least, is kind of an Occam's razor type deal. In other words, the simplest explanation is probably the truth. Those who knew Fisher said he loved his dog a lot. And I mean, who doesn't, right? I know I would totally bring my dog along and this is why I could never disappear because I would bring my dog along and as soon as people saw me, they would know, oh, that's Kirsten. She has her dog with her. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd be able to leave my dog behind either. No, right? So it kind of makes sense. And I'm sure a lot of the people listening who have a dog can totally agree. <laughs> but it is said that Fisher loved his dog more than most people and even more than his family. And not in the way where you're trying to be quirky and being like, no, I like my dog more than I like most people. Like genuinely, he was more attached to his dog than his children. Wow. Because, I mean, clearly, right? Because he killed his children, but he couldn't bring himself to kill his dog? Right. Weird in a way. So it's more likely than anything that he just wanted to take Blue with him for companionship and then realized that when he abandoned the car, he couldn't take Blue with him. Because when police would be searching for him, knowing that he took Blue with him, they would say, you know, Robert Fisher is this guy with this description and this dog. And it just makes him so much more identifiable to people. So, unfortunately, he had to leave Blue behind. And so, when investigators get there, they find Blue laying down underneath the car. He actually made a little bed for himself, they said, 
Um, and I've never seen dogs do that, but I, I have heard of it before. I've just never personally seen it where they'll kind of make a little bed for themselves on the ground. And Blue had done that, but he didn't have a leash on and he wasn't tied up to anything. If I tell my dog to stay, like she's going to stay. But the, the further I get away, the more she's going to start creeping toward me. So with, exactly. with Blue not being tied down, that's kind of insane that he didn't, you know, it eventually start following him wherever he went. Exactly. And this also leads a lot of people to wonder, why didn't he just wander off? Why didn't he? Did he think he was coming back to the car? Exactly. I mean, after all, the car was believed to have been sitting there for at least two or three days, even up to five. When they found Blue, he wasn't exactly in the best shape because he'd been sitting there for at least two or three days, which honestly makes me so sad to think about because, like you said, he probably was thinking that his master was going to come back to him. So, Here's what Phil Rust, a private investigator, had to say about all this. I believe the dog would have followed. Why didn't he take the dog with him? He left the dog by the car. The dog was not tied up to the car, but the dog made a bed underneath the car. If a dog is trained and you tell him to stay, he will stay. But dogs also tend to run, if you take them out in the forest or out in an open area, they tend to explore. And that dog may very well have been out chasing a squirrel or something when he decided to leave. Because I believe that if he was going to walk away, he could have easily just tied the dog up. So the forerunner itself was, as described by former lead detective Hugh Lockerbie, totally spotless, which was super weird. We're gonna take a listen to what he had to say about that also. We didn't find anything in the car. Our crime scene specialists went through that car. only thing that we could find was DNA on a hat and a f one fingerprint off of a coffee cup. And that was Robert Fisher's fingerprint. Not that that links him to a murder, but it puts him in that car. There was so we know for sure that Robert was in this car, like the investigator just said. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Especially like they overlaid some photos of the inside of the car over him speaking i mean just looking at it is kind of eerie right yeah it's like it was a really clean car like it was like, like it didn't have anything in it it didn't leave anything no finger one fingerprint and that was on the coffee mug yeah which a lot of people ask why he would leave that fingerprint because they obviously know it's him in the car why would you wipe down everything everything unless you had an accomplice and you wanted to make sure police knew it was just you in the car and nobody else. I mean, it's it seems a little too convenient, but at the same time, we'll get into the evidence about him possibly having an accomplice later. There's not honestly a lot of it, but it is still an interesting thing to think about and it is kind of another layer of confusion on top of everything. Do you think that's why you collected $250? If you had an accomplice? It could be. It totally could be. We, again, I wish we could ask him. 
we can only really speculate, but it's it's possible that just, he took it to pay someone. I just don't see why he would have an accomplice to kill his family. If it's, so, it's, just, if it's his vendetta, mm. why, why would he have someone else help him? Some people speculate that it could be because he was having another affair. Because, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater, right? And some people have speculated that Fisher could be having another affair and that could have been potentially what him and Mary were fighting about the night before. Hmm. Do you think that's at all possible? That's, that's possible. That's possible. He was tired of his old life and wanted to move on with his new affair. I mean, it. it's what happened in this other case. I won't go into too much of a tangent on it. Maybe I'll do an episode about this case. If you guys want to hear it, let me know. Mm. It reminds me this theory about the Chris Watts case and kind of what he wanted to do in a way where this guy, Chris Watts, he did essentially the same thing, but uh, I mean, it's a different crime, but he did essentially the same thing in that he killed his wife and his kids potentially in order to go run off with his mistress. That's what a lot of people think drove him to it. And a lot of people speculate that a big part of his motive was wanting to run away and start this new life with another younger woman. That kind of makes sense um, about it, though, because like the investigator said, if he was walking down the street after leaving the car and leaving Blue, Blue would have followed. But mm-hmm. if he had another affair, that kind of made sense because then he could have got in another car with the woman that he was going to go be with. And mm-hmm. that could have, you know, caused that, that that would be a good reason for why Blue was still under the truck. Exactly. The exactly. It's it's definitely a possibility and it's interesting to think about, but we'll get into a little bit more of the evidence that supports him possibly having an accomplice or an affair a little later on. Firstly, I do want to touch on one last piece of evidence that was at the scene where the car was. And I want to touch on one last detail to do with the scene at the car before we get into a little bit more of the evidence around him possibly having an accomplice or having an affair. So, grossly enough, there was also human feces found outside the car near the door. And this is such a bizarre part of the case and honestly the most common response I've seen to this detail and probably the one most of us had hearing it is pretty much like, ew, why? And personally, I think it could be one of two things. So it's either meant as a middle finger to everyone he's leaving behind, including the police, or it could mean literally nothing at all beyond him just having to go and not being considerate enough to do that thing where you dig a hole and cover it up. I mean, what do you think? Why? <laughs> <laughs> like, why Why would you, like, this, this is not yeah. cool. It's nasty. It's really gross to think about. And hearing people talk about this and wondering, like, what could the purpose behind it be? Like, I don't know. I. It could be kind of a middle finger to his old life or whatever. But honestly, I kind of lean toward it not really meaning anything. I mean... There was a podcast that I listened to about this because I listened to a few other ones just to see what other people thought about what happened. 
And there was one where it was this, I think they were a couple, but they were talking about, they thought that Fisher could have been made to drive the car away by somebody else, again, kind of tying into the accomplice theory. And they were saying, you know, what if this person all of a sudden held him at gunpoint and he soiled himself? And that's what it is. I mean, I don't think that that's really likely, personally, <laughs> like at all. And I see you're shaking your head. Yeah, I don't think that's likely either. No, but I mean, just the idea of people analyzing this so deeply, I think, is almost kind of funny. Yeah. So, either way, we don't know where he went after this. But one potential option out of very, very many, as far as where he could have gone is that he had disappeared into one of the multiple caves in the area, either to hide out or take his own life. The SWAT team even got involved because by this point, it was known that Fisher had been in the Navy. And like I mentioned before, there was a gun missing from the house. So it not only made sense to be as careful as possible throughout the search, but it also needed to be taken into account that he was probably going to be very good at hiding if he was hiding out somewhere. The SWAT team even got involved because by this point, it was known that Fisher had been in the Navy and, like I mentioned before, there was a gun missing from the house, so it only made sense to be as careful as possible throughout the search. And just to make a note, the gun that was missing from the house, I haven't seen whether or not they matched the bullet that they found in Mary to the gun that would be missing, but they do know that the gun that Robert likely had on him was his kind of everyday gun. So it, from what I could tell, was just kind of like a handheld pistol type thing. Maybe Not like very a, big. A nine millimeter? Maybe, I think that sounds about right. <laughs> I, I'm no gun expert, but it was something that he would be able to easily conceal and, right, and yeah. have with him. Um, so they really wanted to be careful, especially because he's ex-Navy, mm -hmm. looking for him in these caves. So now we get to jump into theories, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, elements of this case. And I'm really, really excited to hear what you have to say. So although there are pretty much endless theories about what happened to Fisher or where he went, I consider these to be the two main options. One. He's dead, either by committing suicide or because he succumbed to the elements out there somewhere in the wilderness. Or two, he's still out there somewhere and is laying low, maybe trying to just live a normal life. Those who theorize that Robert took his own life after fleeing point to the caves as a place where he probably did it. Again, there was a gun missing from the Fisher home and there were dozens of caves in the area. One reporter who was on the scene was interviewed in a documentary that I'd watched, and he said that having been there and seen them, he felt it was possible for Fisher to have gone into one of the caves and committed suicide without any kind of sound being heard above ground. No gun or knife, meaning the one that he would have presumably used on his family, in which I assume wasn't confirmed to still be in the home, was ever found, and nor were any remains. So what do you think about him possibly taking his own life? Do you think it's likely? Do you think it's even possible? Well, knowing that if, if he did take his own his own life, so if they're thinking that it's done in the caves, why not, you know, just go down in the caves and check and see if you can find a body and they say they found no remains. So therefore, 
it, did he take his life? I don't think he had, I don't think he did. I personally don't think he did either. They were searching with actually a lot of high-tech equipment, like different kinds of cameras and scanners and cadaver dogs. And I mean, geez, they had the SWAT team there. And they camped out in the area for three freaking days. You would at least think that they had smelled something, especially because, let's remember, Fisher had already been there for two or three days at least. And if they were there for an additional three days, that's what, like six days at least, that if he did take his own life in one of the caves, his body would be there. And, I mean, they would be able to kind of tell because... I've heard it said so many places, you don't ever mistake the smell of a body right. decaying, you know? And it's really macabre to think about, but yeah, that's just kind of the reality of it. Smelling a dead animal is, like, you, you, get, you get smell the dead, you know? So, like, you mm-hmm. wouldn't miss it. So, therefore... Yeah, you definitely wouldn't miss it. But a lot of people who believe that he did take his own life, they point to the fact that there's so many of these caves in the area that maybe the police just missed it. Do you think that's possible or likely? With the SWAT team and the police and all the other, the, all the the uh, equipment that we have today, there's no way that they, have, that they missed that. I don't see them missing that. Yeah. Unless they're kind of trying to cover it up, which why would they do that? I mean, I don't think they would really have motive to. It's definitely a possibility that maybe they did, but honestly, I... I don't think there's very much evidence to point to them trying to cover this up, especially because they are still looking for him, like, to this day. So, the fact that they didn't ever find a body or a weapon that he could have used on himself is also a strike against him succumbing to the elements somewhere out in the wilderness. Because although there's always a chance of him either dying in an obscure area or even just being picked apart by animals to the point where his remains wouldn't be found, or I mean even both, it's still very unlikely that they wouldn't have found a trace of him at all, like his clothing or the car keys or anything like that. Although I do think the car keys were left in the car as far as I could tell. It's just an example that jumped to mind. It's unlikely to me that they wouldn't have found anything of his you know right supposedly he had the weapon with him correct so yeah if he did become succumb to the elements or if uh picked apart by animals like the gun would still be there exactly so there there would be some kind of evidence that they could have yeah and potentially a knife as well because Nowhere do they say that the knife was missing necessarily. They don't name it as being something missing from the home. But they also can't confirm that it was still in the home, as far as I can tell. Because it could either be that the house was burned so badly that they just couldn't find it. Or it could be that he took it with him. We just don't know. But if he did take it with him, they could have found it by now, I think. But a point in favor of this theory, though, is that Fisher might not have been as excellent of an outdoorsman as we think he was. It's always possible that maybe him or those who still think he's alive somewhere have overhyped his skills, especially over time. And while this is definitely a possibility, the FBI does describe him as being an avid outdoorsman, hunter, and fisherman on their website, where he's actually still one of the top 10 most wanted people like most wanted fugitives to this day he's still on there 
the guy took he took classes so for them to say that it's like they're overhyping his skill i think yeah. that that's kind of uh, a stretch because i feel like he's probably a pretty decent outdoorsman or like why wouldn't he why would he especially since taking classes that would have made him even better you know right so like by him taking classes that's just making him even harder to catch because now he can probably go build him a cabin out there in the wilderness somewhere exactly live off of live off of you know the reserve like somewhere where he can't be found and just hunt for his food you know mm-hmm. so like and they they describe him as being physically fit also i have the um his fbi page pretty much pulled up where he's again still listed as one of the top 10 most wanted fugitives in the country and that is insane that's it's crazy and it's also to me it points to the idea that the FBI, I think, still believes that he's alive somewhere. Because I don't think they would have him on the list if they didn't think that there was still a chance of catching him alive. And they actually advise people um, on the bottom here. If Actually, if you wouldn't mind reading it for us, the, the bit where it says caution, they warn people about him as if he's still out there. Robert William Fisher is wanted for allegedly killing his wife and two young children and then blowing up the house in which they all lived in Scottsdale, Arizona in April of 2001. Should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. Exactly. And I think that is a big point to me in favor of the theory that he could still very likely be out there. And that's actually the next theory that we're going to talk about really quickly. And so, although avid doesn't mean the same thing as skilled enough to basically be Bear Grylls, my gut tells me that he probably was good enough to get along enough to hitch a ride somewhere civilized, like you said, maybe a Greyhound ticket or something like that. And especially listening to how some of the investigators talk about him and considering the fact that he's still on the list and they're offering $100,000 for information that would lead to his arrest... I mean, personally, my gut just tells me he he's more than likely out there somewhere, or he at if least he is, made he, it out of the wilderness. If he is, he definitely has had to have some help, because going on this long without, like, being spotted, without, like, any form of uh, identification to know that, like, this guy's still out there, no one knows, so, like, yeah. he had to have some kind of help. Exactly. And... There is some talk of him possibly having an affair, like we mentioned before. So I'm actually going to want to try and go over some of that evidence really quick because I know I've kind of been teasing it a little bit. So we're going to get into that right now. So some witnesses have said that they saw a man who fit Fisher's description with a woman at a diner between the time he blew up his house and his car was found. This same woman, apparently, knocked on someone's door later that day to ask if she could use their phone because her boyfriend had dumped her and took off after they had a fight. What do you think about that? So, like, did they, like, did they bring that woman in for questioning or anything? They haven't tracked that woman down. All they really have is a description. They don't have a name. They don't really have anything to track her down by. I mean... For all we know, this woman is just somebody going about her business and maybe having a fight with her boyfriend who isn't Robert Fisher and just looks a lot like him or just fits his description. 
so. I don't think that he would have been uh, crazy enough to step into a diner during the day and just like, you know, oh, I just killed my whole family. Well, yeah, let's go get seen in a diner now so they can come find <laughs> I mean, probably I would, I don't want to say I would hope not because I would hope he would do something stupid enough to where he could potentially be caught. But, I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like you said, it's not a very smart move. Yeah, it's definitely not a smart move. Let's go eat a burger before I go to prison. Yeah, or before I go and run away to start my whole new life, you know? I don't personally feel like there's much weight to the idea of Fisher having an accomplice, but I figured that this information would be worth mentioning because, hey, anything is possible at this point. And like we said before, we really have no idea because we don't have anybody to ask these things. Fisher's not around. That woman, we don't know where she is or if she's around anywhere she could have gone into hiding herself. We just have no idea. So, I mean, I think it's possible, but I don't think it's very likely. But this kind of leads us into the final option and final kind of theory that Robert survived and is out in the world somewhere. It's generally considered pretty unlikely that he's just camping out in the wilderness where the police were looking for him for so long, which means that he could have been living out the past 18 years or so somewhere he would be relatively comfortable and, most importantly, around other people. Here's what his sister, Carol, had to say about what she might do if Robert were out there somewhere and one day just decided to come home. I've thought about how I'd greet my brother if he showed up at our door. Um, I've looked for him on the streets, no matter where we've lived. I, I know I would greet him and hug him, and I'd probably ball him out, but then I would do the right thing and contact the police as soon as I could. And I know my mom and my sister would absolutely do the same thing. If Fisher is still out there, some investigators that I saw interviewed mentioned that he would probably be somewhere where he wouldn't leave much of a paper trail. This means paying for just about everything in cash, which he would be able to do in a place that sees heavy tourist traffic, which only seems to add to theories that Fisher could be living or had lived in areas with a lot of American tourists in Mexico or other places south of the border. I've even heard stories from places like in South America, and to be honest, it wouldn't be very difficult for him if he were to need to catch a ride out of Arizona. Like we talked about, he could have used that $250 to even buy a taxi, you know? Think about how far 250 could get you in a taxi. And so, the other thing is, Fisher's a pretty average-looking person, wouldn't you say so? Yeah, I mean, he's like a common Caucasian male. He just doesn't look too... His description could fit a lot of people. Yeah. Like, like you could mistake him for somebody else. Like, I'll post a photo or two of him on the show's Instagram around the time when this episode will go up for you guys to see for yourselves. But, Terrence, would you mind taking a look at this picture of him and just kind of describing his general appearance for us? I mean, you did a little bit before, but... I mean, he's like, he has short hair. Is that black? Is him black? It's like, it's like a black I think, and white picture, so I can't. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think there's a color photo around here. These are more age progressed photos of him, but you can still kind of see his general hair color, like yeah, strong, strong uh, jawline, uh, his blue eyes, 
uh, just like an, an average looking guy. He doesn't look too out of the. He doesn't have any like distinction about himself. Like, exactly. He's kind out. of average looking. That's the only word I really can come up with personally. I mean, it's very possible that he's somebody's Uncle Joe or something like that out there. And they, they have no idea. Because, I mean, even in these age-progressed photos of him, right, doesn't... Yeah, in the age-progressed photos, he look like my grandfather, so... <laughs> right? <laughs> he could be somebody's grandpa out there. Or just Joe who, you know, you see at the football, park every once in a while. Coach. He, he does kind of look like somebody's middle school football coach. Yeah. Right here, like an actor. A little bit like an actor? Right there, like the, uh, the actor from uh, Die Hard. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be very easy, I think, for him to blend in. Yeah. And again, I'll be putting pictures of him, maybe some age-progressed ones, but definitely the ones on the poster. And I'll see if I can try to post the poster on the show's Instagram. So make sure when you're done listening, you come and check that out. But case in point, it's very, very easy I would say, for him to blend in, especially in a place south of a border where it's not at all uncommon to see Americans. And he, to the locals, would probably just blend into the sea of faces, especially. So the fact that Fisher might be able to blend in so well is likely a big part of why there have been so many sightings of him over the years. After the one we talked about earlier by the camper outside of Young, which is basically the last confirmed sighting, of him, which that's so, so long ago. It's crazy. And part of what feeds into the idea that Fisher could be hiding out in a popular tourist destination has to do with the fact that over the years, there have been people here and there who think they might have actually caught him in the backgrounds of their vacation pictures. And I don't know about you, but I would seriously freak out if I thought I saw a suspected murderer in the background of the pictures I took on my family vacation. Like, you get home, you're sifting through the pictures, and you're like, oh, shoot, I had my eyes closed in, in that one, or whatever. And then in the background, you see, wait a minute, is that one of the guys on the FBI's, like, top ten most wanted list? That is just, even imagining it gives me this feeling in my gut that is just, it's like that sinking feeling in your gut when you know something's wrong and you just can't quite put a finger on it, you know? And these sightings really can't be confirmed though because there's no way for the person who could be Fisher in the photos to be tracked down. Kind of like the woman in the diner. There's nothing for investigators to really even begin with to try and track these people down. And it's not productive for them to throw resources willy-nilly at every possibility or every instance of him maybe being spotted somewhere in somebody's picture, you know? But in 2013, Scottsdale police did ask employees of Arizona Game and Fish to keep a lookout for people who might have even just crossed paths with Fisher, which I think is an interesting idea. And in case you didn't know, because I definitely didn't, Arizona Game and Fish is actually a state agency that's involved with conservation of Arizona wildlife through things like protection and management programs and handling things like issuing hunting licenses. 
they're a pretty official organization and the fact that their employees were told to keep an eye out for Fisher I think again says a lot about the possibility that he's still out there somewhere but it is a little confusing as to where he could possibly be because we have all these sightings supposedly south of the border but then they're keeping an eye out for him in Scottsdale still or at least around Scottsdale Like, if he's still alive, I just, I don't see him inside of the states. I could see him uh, across the border somewhere like, I, honestly, just somewhere like Japan. Like, if he went that far, there's no way we would get him. Like, that's, that's true. Like, I just don't see him here. Especially if, over the years, he's paying for things in cash, maybe in a place like Mexico. And then he builds up enough money to where he can buy a plane ticket and go somewhere crazy far like Japan. I never have heard that before and I think that's actually a really interesting idea because in airports in other countries they I think run things a little bit differently they, they do. They I've do. never personally been in an international airport but it's something I'd really like to look into because maybe they don't have the same level of security that we do here or they might not really know about Robert I, Fisher. Yeah, I, I just don't think in, in other places they would really like know, and I, and not even not even have to take him to the airplane. He could like hop on a ship. He could hop on someone's ship. Yeah. And hitch a ride. There's a lot of ways where he could just disappear into the great wide world. You know, it's it's almost a little scary to think about because, I mean, who does this kind of thing and then never acts out again? Right. Is another thought where it's like you can't you can't really like put him in the same group of serial killers just murderer i mean he's a bit more of i think it's a um i forget the exact term of it right now oh my goodness i think it could be a mass murderer or something like that he would be considered instead of a serial killer just because serial killers they take more time between victims or groups of victims to where a mass murderer, if that's the term that I need to be thinking of right now, I'm sorry. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, feel free, absolutely. But they will take multiple victims at once, which is more like what Fisher did. Right, but I think mass murderers do it on more than one occasion. Mass yeah. Mass murderers, they murder a bunch of people, and then the next day they do it again. Like, they're just like that. They don't take time. To if like, they get the opportunity, absolutely. And I think that's what's so scary about the idea of him still being out there because if he's not if he's not dead then he's more than likely acting out again or he has and maybe he's left a second life behind already I mean this isn't something that we've never seen before there was a case I forget exactly when I think it might have been in the 60s or something like that he would be 58 right now if he were still alive but there was another case of a man who he didn't kill anyone but he left his family he had a wife and i think a, a kid or two he left them to start a new life with a new wife and family and then left them too <laughs> to start a new life like a, a a second new life so they ended up finding him by the way like 36 or so years later um and i forget exactly what time period this happened in but it was before fisher and so 
it's not as if we haven't ever seen someone totally pick up and run away from their life before and do it more than once, you know? And so I think it's very possible that he could have acted out again in a big way, and we just don't know because we don't know to connect the two crimes. And maybe he was smarter that time. We have no idea. And that's, I think, what's so scary about it because if not that, he's at least most likely out there being abusive to a new family. Because I think it's pretty safe to say he was abusive to Mary and the kids. And even just that, it's, it's really, really sad to think about. Kind of circling back around to the idea of people spotting Fisher, right? The thing about him is that he seems to have some pretty striking doppelgangers. One that you'll hear about every time you hear about this case is a man in British Columbia, which is a province in Canada, in case you didn't know, in 2004, when he was taken into police custody after a neighbor saw Fisher's wanted poster and called the police. He looked strikingly like Fisher, down to a uh, surgical scar on his lower back, and if you'll remember, Fisher had surgery and a scar in the exact same place. He was even missing a tooth in the same place where Fisher had a gold crown. An old neighbor of Fisher's was even willing to pretend he was being booked, just so he could get close enough and possibly identify the man that police had now taken into custody. And from what I could tell, almost to this day, he swears that the man he saw in the jail was Fisher. The neighbor said that when they made eye contact, he could tell right away that the man who was supposedly Fisher recognized him and couldn't tell exactly from where, but definitely recognized him. Like, you know when you see someone in the grocery store or something, or even just walking around, and you see them and they see you, and you know they see you, and you're both trying to figure out where you know this person from, and you just can't. Yeah, that's happened. <laughs> he kind of had this moment in this jail in British Columbia <laughs> with somebody that he thought was a triple murderer. Which, I mean, the bar for crazy goes up and up when it comes to this case, but... To this day, this neighbor insists that, no, this guy is Fisher. I, I know it. I've seen him. I know what he looks like, what he talks like. They're one and the same. And you would think so, right? Right. The thing is, though, the man that police had in custody had different fingerprints in Fisher. Every little detail lined up except for that. And some people have said that Fisher could possibly have altered or removed his fingerprints, but I personally don't think that this is the case, and neither do investigators from the looks of it. I mean, this man's mother even came forward and said, no, that's, that is my son. That's not Robert Fisher. <laughs> and if you were trying to change or alter your fingerprints, you would leave behind some pretty clear evidence, according to investigators who I've seen speak about it in interviews. Plus, you would be definitely able to tell if this man had totally removed his fingerprints. And how he would even do this isn't super clear, um, but I feel like it would have been mentioned by somebody somewhere if this guy showed up and when they go to fingerprint him, it just comes out as an oval <laughs> in the ink. 
So overall, this is kind of a case that I find myself going back and forth on a lot, but I do feel like it's more than likely that Fisher didn't plan on killing himself. As to whether or not he's still out there, I'm not totally sure. He would be 58 right now if he was still alive, so he's not necessarily too old to be on the move, but he's also around an age where I imagine he'd want to settle down somewhere. If he is alive, he almost definitely thinks he got away with what he did, and is probably disgustingly proud of himself. There's no way in my mind that he feels any significant amount of remorse, because if he did, he would turn himself in and he would have done so a long time ago. Whether he's dead or alive somewhere, I still feel like justice hasn't and heartbreakingly may never be served for his victims. Mary was a really good person, and I feel like she deserved the chance to divorce Robert, move on, and see what else life held for her. Brittany was such a brilliant little girl who would have gone on to do some great things with how smart she was and what a go-getter she was, and Bobby was so kind and fun-loving. To think about his potential being put out too, it, it just makes me so sad. The idea that there's a chance of Fisher dating or even have started another family makes me sick, like physically nauseous to think about. Him being able to live a relatively happy life and just move on from everything that he did when he took away any chance that Mary, Brittany, or Bobby ever had at that is so unfair. And it makes me upset enough to not know what words to even apply to this kind of feeling. I also feel horrible for whoever he's living with or surrounded himself with, like I kind of mentioned before, because they probably have no idea about who he is or what he's done. And abusive behavior is a cycle. And I'm sure he hasn't stopped if he is still out there living with somebody. So... Terrence, I want to take this time to hear what you think about what happened. I, me, I, I think that, I, I don't think that he's in the United States, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. If he is alive, he's definitely crossed the border somewhere and he's not coming back. Um, me personally, I think he's dead. I think he's, he's dead and he's gone. I don't know where. I think he, he probably would have went across the border first and then just went an officer for because there's been no way for him to just settle down, you know? Like, he, mm. he would have to be on the move regardless, no matter what, to, to keep himself from being identified, to be on the move regardless. And therefore, at the age he's at now, it's to the point where he's like, okay, I'll live my life. I'm tired of running. Let's just... Oh, it's definitely possible. Absolutely. So, and so, just to kind my, of... Oh, sorry. My thing is, though, if he did happen to find another family and get with another family. Uh-huh. I am sincerely like worried for them cuz yeah. like they don't they have if they if he did, they that means they have no idea what he's done and what he's about to do and because he's yeah. definitely capable of doing it again. And I think he really might act out again like we were talking about before. It's not something that you just do out of the blue and then never do again or never act out again in a violent way like that. As far as whether this is premeditated or not, I personally, I can't stop going back and forth between, yeah, it really seems like it, and I mean, he may have been brewing for a while, but it looks like he just snapped. What do you think about that? Um, I kind of feel like I, 
it, it seems kind of premeditated, but at the same time, it doesn't. Like, the reason it seems kind of premeditated because who goes to their attic and fix on their attic before blowing it up? Who goes and changes their oil in a car and gets ready to leave and then leaves mm-hmm. the car? Yeah. And chooses a whole other vehicle. Like, I mean, some people have said he could have taken the Forerunner because it looked less suspicious and because, you know, it would be a way to kind of pin the blame on Mary for a little bit. But like you said, why change the oil in the other car? And um, also, like, that that, that kind of makes it seem like it's kind of not premeditated, though, because he, like, he changes oil, and then he's, like, changing this oil because he's going to use it, right, correct? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, okay, now I'm mad at my family. I'm just going to go off everybody and just leave. How about that? Mm-hmm. So it's, like, if it, if it was premeditated, then it kind of was... It's a lot of uh, intricate planning if it was premeditated because he would have had to think ahead enough to say, I want to make this look like I was planning for the future and preparing to continue, you know, doing the nine to five, the white picket fence act. Exactly. And so, I mean, I, I personally am just stuck on the fence between it looks premeditated because how do you get away with something like this for so long? But at the same time, it's like, how could he have planned this, you know? How do you get away with it that on the fly, though? So, like, it had to be... Exactly. It had to be premeditated. He had to know what his plan was going to be after he'd done it, you know? Exactly, but at the same time, it could also be that maybe he didn't have a plan, and maybe he, when he snapped and did this, said to himself, well, now I've got to get out of here and go to my safe place, which is the wilderness, which is the woods. And, and then came up with a plan there. Maybe came up with a plan there or maybe ran call away to again. take his own life or who call knows? That, could have possibly called that woman that he had an affair with. I mean, he could have been having an affair and called the woman he was having an affair with. I mean, we're not even sure at this point um, as to whether or not he could have been having an affair. Uh, From what I've seen, not too many people think it was likely just because we've never found a woman that he could have been having another affair with after the masseuse. But at the same time, there's that nagging thought in the back of your head that says, you know, what if he was just better at hiding it this time? Because after the masseuse, what if it still was the masseuse? What if it happened again? Yeah. And I mean, once a cheater, always a cheater. Again, it could have been the reason him and Mary fought. Exactly. And so either way, it's just, it's really tough, in my opinion, to say and make the call as to whether or not this was premeditated. But I think it's really interesting. So you think it wasn't? Premeditated? Yeah. I kind of think it was. But okay. At the same time, like you said, I mean, like it's it's a lot of stuff that could have went into it. He could have, he could have just snapped and then just went off into the woods and just thought of a plan. Then, like it couldn't have just like right. it probably wasn't premeditated at the time. Um, he probably got into that fight and it just everything was just like it clicked in his brain. Like just that was his boiling point, maybe. So just to kind of wrap up, what are some of your more final thoughts on the case overall? Just kind of feelings and. I feel like it's a really messed up case. Um, I feel like it's a guy looking looking for an excuse to um, get out of something that he probably didn't even want in the first place. And 
that it's a guy that is seriously hurt and he's probably just he wanted something secure and he probably felt that he wasn't secure anymore with that family because right. of course Mary's thinking about getting a divorce and leaving him she probably was gonna get the kids so it's like he was on the verge of losing losing everything already mm-hmm. and it was just another another like boiling point for him like I'm losing my family she's yelling now she's yelling at me mm-hmm. uh, at an earlier age my parents got a divorce you see what I mean like it's just like one um, thing after, after, after another he's just tired he's just saying tired. to himself I don't want to be like my parents and I think there is a lot of truth to the idea that he was so mentally not with it and I do think there was something deeply wrong in him because I mean no normal person goes through a situation like that even if it is you know very difficult for you to face the idea that you're maybe losing everything that you've always wanted you know most people don't kill their family and blow up their house you know yeah maybe he was the way he I'm so way, I think there the way was I something think that he probably was looking at it was like oh wow well I'm losing my family so basically they're gonna be dead to me so why not mm-hmm. they, why don't they just be dead you know yeah so and he just it, and his and his brain is just clicked that way I mean, one of the most common theories for why family annihilators do what they do is the idea that they think they're doing almost something good for their family, as in, I'm keeping us together. But usually that'll entail a suicide on top of it all. On top of it all. So I can see how you would think that, because you you do think he's probably dead somewhere. So in in that kind of headspace I think that makes a lot of sense and I I personally I think there's a lot of possibilities when it comes to this case and I I think that's a really interesting perspective on it and that's a big reason that I've asked you to come on the show and and talk about it because I mean just between you and I we have a lot of different ideas about his motive his premeditation everything like that and I think it's so important too that we don't forget the victims in all of this you know right I think it's it's important that we still talk about these things because of the fact that there are still three people who lost their lives. Whether or not it was Robert's boiling point or he'd been quietly plotting it for months, the result is the same. And no matter where he is, I still think that they deserve justice. And maybe one day they'll get it. Maybe we'll be around for that. Maybe we won't. But I still think talking about it contributes a lot to the potential for them to, to get that justice, you know? Yeah, it's a sad thing to see. People didn't they get to live their life, children. Yeah. They were young. They didn't, they didn't get a chance to grow up and go, be, go do great things. So. Yeah, and I mean, even Mary's father, um, after the tragedy and everything, he still was advocating for Robert's return and asking him and begging him on on tv and things saying robert please come back we just want answers and he unfortunately passed away before anything close to answers have come out so i think that's a big part of why it's important that we talk about things like this absolutely and on that serious note i hope you've enjoyed the second course of the robert fisher case 
It's been a lot of fun having Terrence as our very first guest on the show today, so thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If this episode has whetted your true crime appetite, please show Crime Brulee support by sharing this episode with others or just by showing your appreciation however you'd like. If you're particularly hungry for more, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at Crime Brulee Podcast. That's all lowercase, no spaces, Crime Brulee Podcast. To see some photos related to, to today's episode and stay updated on what we might be serving up next, go ahead and give us a follow. If you have any case suggestions, feel free to leave a message via DM. I'll be keeping an eye out for those. And again, thank you for tuning in. Although it's been a little more than a week since I've last seen you here, I hope you'll come back for the next case I'll be serving up. Just make sure to bring an appetite for true crime. And until next time on Crime Brulee, I've been your host, Kirsten Dorman. And your special guest, Terrence Rush. Thanks again for tuning in.